Ephemeral is a production of iHeart3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. On the last episode of Ephemeral, we traced the dynamic history of video games. Starting with arcades, we looked at how games like Pong and Donkey Kong changed the entertainment industry forever. And eventually, how those games left the arcades and landed in the homes of consumers across the globe. Here, our producer Max Williams picks up the story. In the 1980s, home consoles like the Super Nintendo and the Atari 2600 revolutionized the gaming market. And in the late 80s and early 90s, the competition between these companies started to heat up. In 1989, Sega released their mega-hit console, the Sega Genesis. The Sega Genesis has blast processing. Super Nintendo doesn't. So what's blast processing do? And here's where it gets narrowed, because now all of a sudden, we have a really competitive console. You still had Atari bumbling along. They had a thing called the Jaguar. which they maintained was the first 64-bit system, and it never got off the ground. Then there was the 3DO, which was too expensive. This is video games writer Stephen L. Kent, who we talked to in the last episode. Neo Geo had a home console. That wasn't really competitive. Stephen says that Nintendo, the biggest player in the game's market, responded to the Sega Genesis by releasing the Nintendo 64 in 1996. So by the time that the N64 comes out, now all of a sudden people think it's gonna be Sega versus Nintendo, especially because Sega has this arcade game out right now called Virtua Fighter. And all of a sudden they're gonna be a lot more competitive in Japan with Virtua Fighter than they had been in the past. But no one predicted that the next giant to enter the arena would be Sony and their console, the Sony PlayStation. And I don't think that people realized how serious Sony was. Sony had this Midas touch. They ruled the TV market. Only Trinitron has Sony's exclusive one-gun picture tube for the ultimate in brightness, sharpness, contrast, and color. These are very rare. Observe the dazzling array of colors. Sony Trinitron. Picture perfect. They rule the stereo market. I don't know a tweeter from a woofer from a twoofer. So I bought the Sony compact stereo. So on the one hand, that makes them formidable. But on the other hand, maybe they're not going to be so committed. If things don't work out, they'll just go their merry way and make a new Walkman instead. You really feel the music with a Sony Walkman? The Sony Walkman is a tiny stereo cassette player with truly incredible sound. Put on a Walkman and see the world in a whole new light. The Walkman from Sony, the one and only. Executives at Sega could see the writing on the wall. They'd seen enough from Sony to realize Sony had quite an offering after all. So in the United States, They compounded the problem by rushing to market. It was supposed to come out on September 2nd, Sega Saturn Saturday, September 2nd. Then instead they released it as a surprise in E3 in May, making every possible mistake you could make. First of all, they released it at a few selected retailers, which meant that if you were Toys R Us, you got something to sell. But if you were KB Toys, which actually had more stores, you didn't get any, and you were pissed. Some retailers responded by throwing Sega out of their stores. The next thing is they only had five games, but the pack-ins were wonderful. Virtual Fighter 2 was fabulous. When it came out in Japan, it was a huge seller. Then Sony came out with PlayStation. It did much better than people thought, but it didn't sell as well as the Saturn. But then it came to the United States, and people were wild about it. N64 wouldn't come out for another year. And by the time N64 did, PlayStation was on such a trajectory that no one else would catch up to it. 
So what made the Sony PlayStation so special? The first PlayStation was brilliantly designed. Sony gave you 100,000 polygons per second. Nintendo tried to compete by giving you more textures. But if you looked at games on the PlayStation, they looked better. Games on N64 looked like they were inflated toys. They had that rounded sort of puffy look. The PlayStation also made a smart business move in terms of its format. It was the first major console to use discs rather than cartridges. That was a really good thing for the consumer because cartridges are very expensive to make. You have to actually build ROM memory into them. Instead of a disc, you had chips inside those cartridges. That's expensive. But it wasn't just a question of cheaper. You could fit so much on a single CD. And if one CD for any reason wasn't big enough, you could put a second CD in the package for next to nothing. So all of a sudden, games are huge. You get this huge breakup where Nintendo's constant partner in RPG games, Squaresoft, looks at what Sony is offering and says, hey guys, it's been nice, but Final Fantasy VII is going to come out on the PlayStation. An evil empire is sucking the life force from the planet. Destroying all that's in its path. It's up to one soldier of fortune to save the world. If he succeeds, you survive. If he fails, you can always hit the reset button. Final Fantasy VII. So Nintendo found themselves in an interesting situation. They had over 90% of the market with the NES. And then they were down to about 50% of the market with the SNES. Then all of a sudden, PlayStation comes out, and they're at 30% of the market. But Sony's path to domination didn't stop there. In 2000, Sony released their follow-up console, the PlayStation 2, which, to this day, is the top-selling console of all time. PlayStation 2 came out, and on the one hand, Sony had become very arrogant. The line I always get a kick out of was that they called the graphics processor the emotion engine on. And somebody once quipped that the only emotion I ever got out of it was despair. <laughs> it was hard to program. But Sony took the entire PlayStation 1 architecture, transferred it to a single chip, and threw it into the PlayStation 2 for good measure and it played DVDs. That one little box, that $299 box, was a PlayStation DVD player and a PlayStation 2 all in one. You can argue that they were harsh on their development partners, but they were generous to the consumer. As it turns out, Sony would desperately need the profits from their PlayStation consoles. That's because their other products weren't doing so well. All of a sudden, Samsung and LG come out with great TVs for half the price of Sony's, and Sony no longer owns the TV market. Sony Ericsson telephones disappeared. Nikon and Canon started coming out with cameras, and Sony lost the digital camera market. And all of a sudden, PlayStation 2 is a godsend because it's the only thing that's keeping Sony alive. PlayStation's iron grip over the video games industry changed everything. Many console developers, like Sega and Atari, faced layoffs, reduced output, or quit the console market altogether, until eventually, Nintendo was Sony's only real competitor. That is, until one more tech company decided to try their hand at video games, Microsoft. They released their first console, the Xbox, in 2001. But it didn't go over so well in countries outside the U.S. The original Xbox was a dreadful idea for Japan. A lot of people attack Japan and say, well, Xbox never had a chance because it was American and Japan wouldn't let it catch on. There's some reasons to feel that way. But looking at everything from the other perspective, it was way too big. There were Japanese washer-dryer towers 
where the footprint on the ground is about maybe a third bigger, maybe a half bigger than that Xbox footprint on the ground. Didn't have a lot of Japanese games for it, where Sony had a huge library of Japanese exclusives, and Nintendo, of course, was Nintendo. And then there was the name, too. I never realized this, but a friend of mine, Ryan Payton, pointed out to me that here in the United States, we say X marks the spot, and that's a good thing. But in Japan, X is actually kind of a negative thing. So the X box was sort of this negative box. It's the box not to have. They came nowhere near a million units. But Microsoft was self-aware about the shortcomings of the Xbox. So when they released the Xbox 360 in 2005, they overhauled their marketing strategy. The next Xbox up would sell over a million, which is still paltry compared to the other Xboxes. But boy, the effort and the intelligence that Microsoft put into doubling their sales. They went into Japanese homes and talked to people. They worked wildly to attract good game designers, and they made a big budge in the Japanese market. Meanwhile, Nintendo struggled to stay relevant during the early 2000s. They released the Nintendo GameCube in 2001, which sold less units than the Xbox. The GameCube never grew to account for more than 15% of the total games market. On the one hand, you look at GameCube and you say, wow, you know, so sorry to see Nintendo go away, down to 15%. But then they turn around and come out with the Wii next, which isn't a game system for gamers. It's a game system for gamers' grandmothers. But I'll be darned if they didn't recapture the market. With the Wii, Nintendo successfully diversified the world of video gaming. They created an interactive experience unlike anything before it. And it was the first console to be fully accessible to a wider, more family-oriented audience. And it was a huge success, selling over 100 million units and putting Nintendo back on the map. Steven says that the games industry learned a lot from Nintendo's success. The more accessible games were, the more they would sell. And this sparked a new revolution across gaming. So the accessibility of video games is they've become ubiquitous. It used to be that you went to the arcades, or if you had $200 at a time when $200 was really $500, you bought an Atari. And it wasn't as good, but you bought it. Now you can play the best arcade games from the 80s on your cell phone. Everyone's got a cell phone. Because of Gunpei Yokoi and his philosophy of using old technologies, Nintendo keeps the price on their consoles pretty cheap. But on top of that, if you can't afford a Xbox Series X, guess what? You can probably afford a used 360. There was a time when the game companies were saying, yeah, you know, we're going to hit $20 billion this year in sales. We're bigger than Hollywood. Now they're getting closer to $100 billion in sales. And they're bigger than Hollywood plus professional sports plus the music industry combined. So what's next for gaming? One of the big trends right now is virtual reality. But I will tell you that virtual reality really scares me. I was talking with someone recently who was telling me that he used to get so motion sick playing virtual reality games, but now he doesn't anymore. And he was happy about that until I pointed out that your brain physically remaps itself based on the stimulus you get, which meant that his brain had remapped itself to accommodate VR. There's been a lot of research done on VR and the effects it has on our brains, but not all of it has been released. And I wonder about that. I'm nervous about what VR will do in the long run. But one of the more exciting advancements to think about is how visuals continue to improve. As Steven points out, graphics have come a long way from early video games. I remember looking at Ghosts and Goblins on the NES and turning to my mom and saying, you know, that's good artwork. My mom's looking at it going, really? You think so? Sony was so good at presentation. Nintendo was so good at presentation. Frankly, if you saw 
the first FIFA soccer on the 3DO. That was the game that turned sports games from being flat guys on a flat field kicking a flat ball into having ambiance. The stadiums are there and the stadium is part of the game. One of the things I love about video games, I've always loved about video games, and I don't think I'm alone in this, is that video games can take you someplace you wouldn't want to be in real life. You can be a guy challenging the Greek and now I believe the Nordic gods. You can be in a haunted house, being chased by machine gun toting zombies. Whatever you want, they'll take you into these places that you wouldn't want to be in in real life or places that you couldn't qualify for for real life. You can beat the Williams sisters in tennis if you're good enough on a tennis game. You can fight Brock Lesnar. These are things that in real life are not possible. And video games have gotten so good at presenting them in a way that you look at it and you think it's got to be real or it's almost real. But here's the caveat. In literature, there's a term called the suspension of disbelief. I would argue that they achieved the suspension of disbelief in video games even back in the 8-bit era, where you were running Mario across polka-dotted mushrooms. I got to tell you, I got acrophobic playing that game. When Mario fell off a mushroom or a platform, I felt like I was dropping off the face of the world. They've been good at getting people to suspend their disbelief with lesser graphics. It gets harder now because once you're spoiled with what exists today, if you've got a PS5 or an Xbox Series X, it's hard to go back. You can pick up a Game Boy and still get lost in Tetris easily enough, but some of the other things aren't so easy. With the latest consoles, the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series X, Games are now closer than ever to looking lifelike. After a quick break, we're going to sit down with familiar iHeart podcast voices who also happen to be avid gamers, and we'll discuss what we are most excited about for the future of gaming. It's no secret that we have a big group of gamer nerds on the iHeart podcast team. A few weeks ago, we decided to chat with a few of them about our best gaming memories. Hi, I'm Trevor Young. I am a producer on Ephemeral, and I'm very excited to talk about video games. Hi, I'm Annie Reese. Um, I'm a podcast host for the show Stuff I've Never Told You and Saver, and I am also very, very excited to talk about video games. This is Matt Frederick. I'm an executive producer on Ephemeral officially. I'm also a host of Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. And hi, I am Max Williams. I am a producer here on Ephemeral. And yeah, I love video games. So one of my first questions I had for the group to kick it off is a pretty obvious one, but it's just kind of what your first video game memory was, like what your first system and game was. I'll start by saying I'm pretty sure mine was getting like the gray, chunky Game Boy, like the original Game Boy was, I think, the very first video game system I played. And I either played Tetris on it for the first time or I played Pokemon, like, blue or red version, uh, which would have been around, like, 96, I guess. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Indeed. One of my first video game memories is I have an older brother, and it was kind of through him that I got introduced to video games. So I was probably four years old, and I remember him playing... Like, my early memories get all mixed up, but I remember pretty clearly the Turtles in Time... Super Nintendo version. And then he had like an X-Men game that I really liked because the animation was Storm. I thought that was so cool. Uh, I think that was also Super Nintendo. But we did have like a original Nintendo. And I remember him playing, I believe it was a Zelda game and also Mario on there. But my like early memories are of watching him play it. And it was kind of his domain at first. But then I, I moved up in the world and started to play myself. So I, I'm, I'm a little bit older. Uh, now I only know this first one because I have video footage of myself and my father playing it, but it was a Mattel in television and it's it had this controller that had a little circular metal thing that you used. It was very strange. It was a horse racing game where you don't really 
play the game. You just bet on which horse is going to win. Less of a video game, more like an interactive movie. Very similarly, my first real memories are of an original Nintendo Entertainment System playing weird games like Kung Fu and Solstice. Yeah, I think my first video game memory was actually on the computer. I remember being a kid and my parents were like, you guys can play video games, but they have to be educational. So it was a lot of like HE Games, I believe was the company. It was like Putt-Putt Goes to the Moon and stuff. I think my first gaming system was similar to yours, Trevor. I remember having like the blocky gray Game Boy and having, I think I had Pokemon Blue and Alex had Pokemon Red. Because I was always like, red's cooler. I want red being the annoying little brother that I am. Yeah, what Matt was saying reminded me that like there was a whole era of like at home video game playing that like wasn't like proper consoles. It was like these like little boxes that would have like one or two random like kind of things on them that you could plug into your TV and like go. But it was really just like one or two things. It wasn't like a proper game console with cartridges or anything like that. Um, It was that kind of what that was, Matt. Uh, the Intellivision, I believe, it had console. It had uh, cartridges, very similar to like a ColecoVision. That was like the other one that came out very early that I remember. I never had an Atari, which was like the first system that had the cartridges you're speaking of. But yeah, I, I don't know, man. There's something so amazing about a physical thing that you just plug in, especially with the sound of it plugging in. I don't know, when you're thinking about it, ephemeral things... You know, we don't even have discs anymore. You just download your games. But like getting a hold of that sucker uh, and just that feeling, especially in the old Nintendos, man, oh, it's great. Which made the, the experience of like a blockbuster or video game rental place all that more important and exciting. Yes, I mean, on that note, like where, where did y'all like get your games from? Do you remember? Christmas. If I got a game, it was Christmas. If uh, I picked one up, it was a local video game store, prob- which was probably a blockbuster. Yeah. Um, I, like I said, about my brothers were the ones that usually got the video games, and it actually caused some tension later because I bought like the console, but they had all the games. So when we went our separate ways, you know, who gets what? <laughs> um, I claimed the PlayStation 2 because I fixed it with my own, my own hands and screwdrivers. So that's mine. I still have it. So I don't think I started. We did get a lot of games um, from Blockbuster. We rented a lot of, especially for Sega. But I started buying, once I got older, it's around PlayStation 2 era, I started buying my own games. Uh, and I once did a really annoying thing where I showed up with like just my allowance money. So it was like quarters and stuff. And I paid for this game. The guy was so mad at me. <laughs> but that's how, that's how I had my money. I didn't know what to do. Yeah, no, I was actually just digging through some, like, I have a bunch of, like, video game stuff, like, old stuff, and I found this uh, copy of uh, Paper Mario for the uh, N64. Nice. And right here on the top, it says, Property of Blockbuster. <laughs> wow. Because it was, like, you know, you, you could rent the games, but you could also, like, pay, I don't know, like, what it was, like, 20 bucks to like, buy the used game. I feel like there had to have been another place, but I don't remember going to a GameStop or anything like that back then, or even if GameStop was a thing yet. So, yeah, I think just, like, Blockbuster, I just rented games, and after a certain amount of times, if I rented it, my parents were like, okay, we're just going to buy this because we're sick of paying, you know, the $9 or whatever it is to rent it for the weekend. So my recollection is going to, it was first called Electronics Boutique, and then it became EB Games, and I'm pretty sure that got merged into GameStop. Yeah. I could be wrong about that, but yeah, the first, I remember the first game store I went to was like EB Games. And that's where I would get like my N64 games and uh, SNES games and stuff like that. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that was like before GameStop existed. But the mall would have them, y'all. Just stores at the mall just yeah. would have them. Right. Yeah. yeah. It was a whole thing. There was a, I lived in a small town and there was a, a mall like a 30 minute drive away. It was a big deal. You'd go to EV games and you're like, oh, this is heaven. And it was very exciting. Dude, well, and you had the arcade there, too, generally. Not at all malls. But if it was a good mall, it had an arcade. Oh, yeah. And, you know, if you're a kid, mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys had this experience, but you get a, you get some quarters and your family just let you go to the arcade for a little while. I can't remember if my parents would leave me there, but I know that once I entered the arcade, nobody was there but me and the consoles. And uh, <laughs> it was just amazing. Yeah, let's talk arcades for a second. So two questions. Matt, maybe you can answer. Do you remember the name of the arcade you went to? 
And do you remember what games you played on it? Oh, man. It was in Clearwater, Florida when I would go visit my grandparents. I remember that one just really specifically in my head. It was just a small mall that was a short drive from their house. And I remember that one. And I remember the arcade at the roller rink, which was just a couple of games set up kind of on the periphery of the rink. But I remember playing uh, like a couple of ninja based games there for the first time ever. Like Ninja Gaiden like, man, I just I have a very clear memory of it happening, but I can't I can't tell you the details. <laughs> I went to a time out. It was called Time Out. And it was an arcade in Gainesville, Georgia, which again, I grew up in a small town. That was just like outing. If you're gonna go that way, it's a whole day. But my parents would drop us off and just leave us there. And I loved there was a zombie game I really loved, a Star Wars game I really loved, a dinosaur one, and a haunted house one. Oh, I love those are like the kind of point and shoot ones. But I was also really good at claw machine. I was like so good. They banned me from it. (laughs) (laughs) Like no more. No more. You're cheating. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't really have that many like distinct memories of like, I guess, arcades when I was younger. Oddly enough, when I was like 19, I actually ended up working at it like an arcade like place for about six months. But there was like this one place called like Star Time or something like that. It's like in like the suburbs like north of Atlanta. And Alex and I would go to that and we'd just play House of the Dead like the entire day. Just like keep hitting, like, you know, continue putting the more money in stuff. And by that point, it wasn't like tokens or chips. It was like the card. But yeah, like, I would say most of my memories are like when I was like 19, I actually worked at like it was kind of like a Chuck E. Cheese independently owned type place. And I was a technician, which meant it's like, you know, if a bunch of kids just shoved coins into the wrong machine, um, I would take it offline and un- jam the coins. But I remember they had like a Miss Pac-Man there and they had like, I think a Space Invaders there. And unfortunately, I was still like too young to appreciate how awesome it was having those like really retro awesome machines. But I don't know, I feel like by the time I got really into gaming, like arcades were already, you know, pretty phased out. Mm, bless you for doing that work, sir. Pinball. Does everybody have pinball memories? Does anyone have pinball memories? I got little. I, I feel like pinball was at the arcades I would go to. Mm-hmm. But like that was the only context that I would find it really was like in arcades. Mm-hmm. Um, there did usually like a corner or a wall of the arcade where there were pinballs. And my favorite ones were always the ones connected to movies, mm-hmm. you know, that I knew like the Star Wars one or the Indiana Jones one or something like that. Well, just as a personal connection for me, and I, I wonder how this connects with you guys, like, the experience of playing a video game of any kind, including a pinball game, which isn't really a video game, you know, it's more integrated with video graphics and stuff later on, but it's associated for me with it because of the location, as you're saying, Trevor, the arcade. I have clear memories of my father and I playing and the joy that I would get when my dad and I would like compete on a pinball machine. And then that translated later on to us competing in other like console games at the house which is just this clear through line that I've got with my connection to my son now with video games. So I'll just, I'll, I'll bring that back up later. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, that reminds me, you know, I, I think I have a somewhat similar story where most of my arcade time was spent at a place in Dallas, Texas called Nickel Rama because everything was a nickel. And um, Dallas is where my dad and stepmom lived. And so I would go visit them there. I didn't live in Dallas. And my dad was always working. So I never really got to hang out with him when I visited, weirdly. So I'd like spend most of that time with my stepmom. And uh, that was just kind of our thing we did when I would visit, like pretty much like every day when I would visit or like whatever weekends I would go, we'd go to the Nicarama. And uh, that's like really how my stepmom and I like got to bond and know each other growing up when I was a kid. So we'd, um, you know, go to the like two player you know, like fighting games, like Mortal Kombat or whatever it was, or like the Simpsons game where you work together and like kind of go across the map, shooting weird guys popping out of trash cans. Like, like that was just our thing. Like that was me and my stepmom's thing. So, uh, you know, she's one of my favorite people in the world. And I don't think we would be as close without that arcade, without Nickel Rama. I had a friend who had a pinball. She had some pinball machines at her house because her dad really loved pinball machines and it was the coolest. Whoa. It was so cool. I was always very, very excited to go and visit her. And I think that's another, when I think of video games, there's that kind of element when you're a kid where you get 
jealous of who has what game and what console and you're gonna go i was gonna go to her house and play pinball you know like having these associations with she also had an atari and i didn't have an atari i had a sega so we got to like mix it up sometimes i was always really jealous when my friends were like better like certain games than me you know like i was always really bad at super smash on the n64 growing up like i just like couldn't figure it out i don't know if it was the controller i'm much better at it now but yeah it just like drive me drove me nuts that i was like always like last place on smash and I feel like since then I've like devoted my life to like getting better at that game so I can like not be in last place on <laughs> Brawl or whatever the newest one is. No, Brawl was on Wii. The newest one's like Ultimate, I guess. That's a, a really interesting, just larger topic to bring up, the competitiveness angle. You know, video games is really a bonding thing for friends in many ways, especially in the console era. I, you know, my, my friends and I would always get together and play various games like that. For us, it was more like Halo on the original Xbox. My friends and I would get together all the time and just play Halo. And that's all we would do all night. And we couldn't wait till the next time we got to do it again, uh, which translated later to MMORPGs or, you know, the online thing where we could be in our separate places. Once we went off to college and everything, we were still playing together. We were just separated. That's what I find really funny about my uh, like gaming now in this point of my life. So, like, you know, I had a lot of friends who were really into gaming, really competitive. I would play with them. I was usually, like, one of the worst out of them. But I'd say about, like, 19, 20, that's when I realized I hate playing video games with other people. I'm a solo gamer. And I've embraced it in my, like, you know, now going to my 30s. It's like, that's when I got really into, like, Assassin's Creed and then Skyrim, Fallout, all this stuff. I'm like, nothing about just, like, getting online and playing with people, even if I know them, like really, like it's kind of like my period of respite away from, I mean, a lot of this might tie into the fact that I was a bartender for many years. I was with people all the time. And, you know, I'll play with people on occasion, but I don't really enjoy it. Yeah, I'd second that in a way now. I think I'm like kind of in between where there was like a time where I got a lot of like communal value out of video games, especially like Matt was saying in the MMO RPG heyday. Like when World of Warcraft hit, me and my friends were all up on World of Warcraft. Like that was like our thing. We didn't even like hang out. There was like a whole year where we didn't even hang out in person because it was so much cooler to be like in our like respective homes on our computers talking on our like horrible little uh, like USB mic. That was like what we wanted to do. That's how we wanted to hang out. But at some point over the years, like... I don't know, like online gaming just started to feel more and more like toxic to me. Like I'd be on it and people were like really bad. Like by bad, I mean like would say horrible things and were like just like really rude and mean. And, um, you know, a couple of years ago, I, I got really into Overwatch and I was so I was playing like Overwatch like online a lot. And like, man, like just like the amount of like racism and sexism and all horrible things that I just like and just like abuse you know like people like berating you over like messing up a game or something like that it's just like not not worth it anymore totally hear you Trevor I tried recently to use the oculus to do some online multiplayer gaming and it was a horrible experience for that reason you just pointed out and this is my opinion but this is what I think these are probably a lot of younger people who are playing these games, uh, including Overwatch, all these games, they are developing, they are like testing out some of these more, the things that they're not supposed to say, the things that, the way they interact with others and, you know, testing out that mean streak because maybe it's been done to them. That, I don't, that's not the case for every kid, but I think you're you're encountering that a ton when you go into an online space now with video games, with younger people. Again, I think they're just, they're testing in a lot of ways because they're not going to get necessarily in trouble for saying those things that are kind of naughty and exciting for a kid's mind. Um, and they probably don't even understand what they're saying or what it really means. Just to defend the griefers and the a-holes that you'll encounter. Sorry, that not that they need defending. No, I, I get that. Uh, I, I hope it is really that innocent um, and... It comes from a place of naivete, but uh, sometimes it feels like I'm talking to adults who were those kids and just like never really grew up. Yeah. You know, now they're like in their 30s or something and are still like saying horrible things, you know, I don't know. I mean, that would track, right? Yeah. I mean, you got the whole 
Gamergate thing, I'm it's like literally a woman getting death threats from adult men because she dared to critique a game that they liked. So it's definitely it's extremely it can be very very toxic and very dangerous and unfortunately a lot of like um it's getting worse. Like there's actually been some surveys, some studies recently that were going backwards. Like there have been some progress made. So I'm very competitive. But I stopped playing online games at 12 because I was getting, like, harassed. And I've just never gone back. And it didn't feel like a, a safe space. But it is a weird thing for a 12-year-old to be like, oh, God, <laughs> I, can't, I can't be involved in this anymore. It's interesting because I, like I said, I got introduced to video games through my brothers and I was very competitive. However, it was always, always, in my mind, viewed as this is a more masculine space. So... I would play, but only if they would let me play. And like I, you, you all probably remember this, but I bet some listeners don't. Games used to only have like one safe space or like two, maybe. And they so they would go through and erase all of my games, and it was just like a huge point of contention. Um, so I always felt like I wasn't good enough for them. Like they were way better uh, than I ever could be. But then at the same time, like my other friends who were girls who didn't really play video games thought that like I was kind of strange because <laughs> I was a girl playing video games uh but I did go on to uh I won a Super Smash Brothers competition in college uh I went to a very technical school and it was 70% men and they all accused me of cheating and said, there's no way she could have won. It's impossible. Like, we're shouting in my face. So I've never competed ever again. <laughs> but I did win, and I won some money. Yeah. Whoa. Nice. Congratulations, first of <laughs> yeah. all. Wow, that sucks. What character? What character? Marth. Marth. Hell yeah. Marth. Marth. I mean, Martha's pretty jacked, so yeah. that makes sense. It's wild to me, though, that you had the kind of self-awareness as early as 12 to be like, you know what? This is, like, toxic. I don't need this. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really toxic. Uh, also, I just, I prefer storyline-based games. I do like, I like party games like uh, uh, Mario Kart and all that kind of stuff. But, like, I really love a good storyline. And so this was, it was common for me growing up to, like, I would watch my brothers play and my friends would watch me play, like, like it's a movie or something. Uh, and I feel like that not a lot of online games are like that. So it was a couple of reasons, but it definitely, like, it scared me <laughs> to to play online. What you were saying about liking games that have a story anyways, I'm, like, totally the same way. I think my, my favorite game series are probably, like, the Final Fantasy series, uh, the Metal Gear Solid series, things that, like, have really like compelling deep storylines to them certain final fantasy games that's um up for debate but overall i think like they're all written pretty well and um yeah it's it's been hard for me to get into games like fallout or like a bioshock or something where you're just kind of like in first person the whole time like kind of exploring these worlds that's just like it's fun it's cool but like there's no like characters to latch onto as much there's no real like plot development yeah fallout 4 um, you ki- you kidding me yes there is Get out of town, Trevor. I'm, I'm going to get canceled for this opinion. <laughs> get out of town. My favorite game for PlayStation 4 uh, is The Witcher, which is like that. You go wherever you want, you do whatever you want, but then the overall story is, in my mind, so perfect and developed for a more mature audience. It's it's made for a gamer that's been playing since, you know, NES. There is that, you guys are talking about, like you know, there's that spectrum. So it's like, I'm thinking about like, Elder Scrolls V Skyrim, which is like one of my favorites of all time, but it there's really isn't another character you'd really ever latch on to. And like that, that's what I have always felt like one of the big improvements in Fallout 4 was it's like, okay, here are these companions, some of which when you finish the game, you're gonna have to turn on, you're gonna have to kill. It's not perfect, but it is a lot better. But if I'm really thinking about like my favorite playthrough, I'm thinking like Assassin's Creed 2, and then I'm gonna include Brotherhood, because that's a that's the conclusion to that. And that was, you know, you had a lot of, like, you know, on the tertiary stuff you could control, but it was a straight line, storyline. You were going to start the game at 17 years old, and at the end, you're killing the, the Pope's son. Spoiler to anyone who hasn't played it yet. And, yeah, I hadn't gotten there yet. 
was waiting for the Switch remasters. Well, well, think about games like The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past mm. that came out on Super Nintendo. And just how story forward that game was, even though it was an action game that you got to fight through tons of enemies and you never stopped to have a battle. You're just fighting. I don't know. That, that kind of game really changed the way I thought about uh, video games in general. And Super Metroid. Oh, God, Super <laughs> Metroid. Oh. Yeah, I guess up to that point, like there was nothing really like that, right? There was no concept of like a a story or a, a motivation behind a lot of these games. It was just like character does thing. It is fun. You will have fun. That is the game. Did y'all ever go on a plane flight when you were a kid and like get a video game magazine? No. No? Oh my god, that was I again, this is me visiting my grandparents in Clearwater. Every once in a while, we would fly instead of drive. And if we ever did, it was all about getting that video game magazine for the plane flight. And you just stare at all the amazing things that could be in your life one day. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I maybe got like Game Informer at the like, um, yes, at the Hudson News stand or whatever, uh, and would like sift through that, like being really stoked about uh, like the still images for Kingdom Hearts 2 or something. Can we talk for a second about just how hard games back then were? Like the games on like Sega Genesis, for example, like some of those Sonic games. Yeah. I don't know if y'all ever played those, but like it felt like certain games were just impossible to beat. Like I don't I don't think I ever beat some of those Sonic games that were just like ridiculously hard. But I've heard like that was the point. I think that the technology has just come so far. There are some games I was really good at when I was a kid, and now I'm convinced like you compensate for like lag or glitch. So now when I try to play them, I'm like, it's why isn't it turning? Like, I think you get used to those things when you're a kid and you kind of have it in the back of your mind. Okay, I have to start turning two seconds before I actually, it looks like I need to turn. So I'm terrible at a lot of games I used to be really, really good at. And they were, they were very, very hard. I have many memories of just like, <laughs> even just the physicality. That, like there was another game where the buttons you had to press to just jump like double jump, impossible, impossible. And it's not like it laid it out anywhere. Like now games are really good at being like, to jump, press A. Back then it was just go for it. I don't know. You figure it out on your own. Yeah, figure it out. <laughs> there was a game on NES that I played called Iron Sword Wizards and Warriors 2. That's what it was called. And it was my favorite game. I loved it. I loved being this warrior in uh like a ghoul you remember ghouls and ghosts little ironclad warrior with all his armor and his sword it was like that but it was way more simple and way more difficult and i never beat it i have no idea how that game ends i still think about that game but i don't know i i just need to watch a walkthrough on youtube i guess of somebody who's better than me yeah yeah I, i've got that with a bunch of uh mega man games that i would play on like PlayStation 1 and a couple other consoles. Those Mega Man games were, I think, probably the hardest games I ever played. Yeah. Except for Dark Souls. Oh, Jesus Christ, no. <laughs> don't talk about we don't talk about Dark Souls in this house. I never played Dark Souls, but I live with guys who played Dark Souls, and that was painful for me. Yeah, just like F-bombs and con like hearing controllers like smash against the wall in the other room. I went on vacation with my roommates when I was 23, and one of the dudes brought his PS3 and Dark Souls, and just sat in the condo on the beach the entire trip. What a horrible vacation. Playing Dark Souls because he was hooked. And it was just pain and misery that we all had to listen to in this small little condo <laughs> in Myrtle Beach. You guys know Tyler and Chandler, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know of them. These are two other producers who work with us. We used to go in the basement and put on Dark Souls on the projector and take turns playing and dying horribly and getting so angry and throwing controllers and Chandler would watch and go, you guys are dorks. <laughs> <laughs> but we couldn't get enough. Do y'all deal with any like conservative parents or people who kind of like barred you from playing like M-rated games and stuff like that? Like, did your parents not let you play Grand Theft Auto or whatever? Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I remember when Alex and I got our N64, we were still pretty young. There was one rule. We couldn't get Zelda because it had swords and fighting. 
We were allowed to play Super Smash Brothers. We weren't allowed to play Zelda, which literally had <laughs> Smash Brothers had Link. Plenty of swords in that game, yeah. And it was all about fighting. <laughs> Everything changed for me when I got a PlayStation, and I got a game called Resident Evil, and I would play it quietly in my room at night, alone in the dark, yes. and scaring the crap out of myself. Uh, I remember my friend had to leave one night when he was staying over and we were playing Resident Evil and he's like, I, I gotta go home. I I, I can't handle this. <laughs> it wasn't that I was hiding it from my parents necessarily. They just didn't understand what the game was or how scary it was to play. But they let you play it? Like they didn't censor it from you? That was when I was quite a bit older. You know, old enough to play Resident Evil. I guess. Was I? I don't know. God. Are we ever old enough to play Resident Evil? <laughs> My parents were very much kind of what you mentioned earlier, Max, where they were like all about the educational. I had a lot of like uh, computer games I played that were very educational in nature. And I loved them. I actually still think about how fun those were. Um, so they that was kind of their... <laughs> I liked to like jumpstart fifth grade. That was so Math fun. blaster. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think I would play that now. It's still yeah. time. <laughs> Uh, and they knew like we had the Sega game, so they they would see like we had the racing game, we had a like dinosaur game, but I think like you said, Matt, I, I think they just didn't really understand that much. So I too played Resident Evil, and I definitely was too young to play it. That's also a game, one of the last games that I mentioned that I bought with all my allowance. I bought a Resident Evil game, and I was definitely too young to buy it. But the guy didn't say anything. I think if they had known. I don't know. They might have still been like, whatever, because Resident Evil is kind of a strange one because it's zombies. And I don't know why that makes it different, but it kind of feels like it does. I, I Yeah, I guess they just didn't really understand. But I had a friend who was super conservative and she did not, her parents were super conservative and she did not approve of me playing video games. And she didn't like, she didn't want me to play them around her. So I did encounter that. Just on the educational games tip, I feel like all my parents' money went into my video game addiction now that I'm made this I made a list of all the games I played and I'm just thinking about all these things Super Nintendo and Nintendo made a piano game are you guys aware of this like an early Guitar Hero type thing no it's kind of like Guitar Hero but it was specifically to teach somebody how to play piano and it was called Miracle I believe because I think we had one it's weird I remember specifically having a Miracle keyboard I can't remember if we had the game for it or not but it was a just a cheap little keyboard, and you could plug your Nintendo or your Super Nintendo into it. But that's just really cool that game systems did things like that. Yeah, I mean, I know Guitar Hero is not actually teaching anybody how to play guitar, but I feel like it definitely inspired a lot of people I know to actually pick up a guitar and try and figure that out. And I think it introduced a lot of people to like a lot of music that maybe people wouldn't have known about otherwise. Hell yeah, dude. Look at that. Matt just pulled out a guitar <laughs> here. Yeah. It's my PlayStation 2. Oh, oh look at those nice. buttons. Nice. How well do those buttons work? Are, are they like super sticky and barely work? Both are in perfectly working order. I loved uh, DDR. Yes. I had the Matt Dance Dance Revolution. I still have them. And we, me and my little brother would just play after school. We would play DDR. And to this day, there are certain songs I can't hear without being like, step, 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 jump, step. <laughs> and we would just try so hard to, like, perfect all the songs. And we we had to, like, do some surgery on one of the mats because the, the, you know, sensors got all messed up. Uh, but that, that was fun. I had such a good time with DDR. This is what I wanted to bring up. Um, more things that consoles introduced uh, that were peripher periphery peripherals. Is that how you say it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure. I'll take it. Peri peripherals. Uh, other pieces of hardware that you would attach to your game system to play specific games. The one I think many of us probably think about is the Nintendo light gun, the orange one. Did you guys play Duck Hunt and all those? Yeah, 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 totally. Does anybody remember the Super Nintendo light gun? <laughs> was it different? Yes. I'm trying to remember. It was a full-blown bazooka called the Super Scope 6, and it was a bazooka. And you held it, and you played games the way you would with a light gun, but <laughs> the bazooka. So were you, like, bazookaing, like, ducks and duck hunters still? 
No, I I I remember you're shooting like missiles that are flying through the air. Okay, and you've got your bazooka and you're trying to shoot them down. Because I'm just imagining <laughs> you're playing duck hunt and you're trying to hunt them and you shoot a missile at it and he just blows up. <laughs> <laughs> duck eliminated. Dog goes too. Sorry, dog. <laughs> Splash damage. My friend had a. Uh, she had a, like an early VR system, um, like early early days. And that got, I hated it because it was like the graphics weren't good and it was really disorienting and it just never did what you were doing. It didn't work very well. I guess the technology wasn't there. Yeah, I don't know. VR never really um, appealed to me. However, I feel like the Wii is probably was like the closest thing to uh, making it sort of accessible or a version of it accessible because it's all like very interactive, right? Like the whole point of the Wii console was like, to sort of simulate VR and, and or like at least have movement correlate to things happening in the game. I just really quickly want to talk about the experience of playing video games with your child. It's given me a ton of perspective just on what it was, what it must have been like for my parents to like uh, release me into these video game worlds and uh, trust that I would. I don't know. It, we, it's it's about decision making in a lot of cases, especially in newer games. Like, what decision will my son make when he encounters a bunch of farm animals in Minecraft? How will he react when villagers are around in Minecraft? And you know, having those conversations with him about, well, you know, why would we just kill all of these guys? Or what? What's the difference between if you kill the villager or if you trade with the villager? I know that's kind of a weird thing to think about, but I'm just imagining the learning opportunities that aren't just sitting down and, you know, learning the way we would the, with the educational games that we used to play, but learning about interaction with other things in an environment. I believe there was a big study done about that and specifically like actions have consequences and learning that through video games and, and what, that can look like. And this is sort of outside the scope of what we're talking about today, but video games have been used to train people to do things. And one thing I find really interesting about them is that sort of aspect of when you're designing a game, you do have to kind of get into like how the human brain works and like, are they going to get that they need to go over here? All these like really interesting design elements, but essentially trying to codify humans (laughs) and what are they going to do in this space which I find like really 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 fascinating and and the ways that they can they can be used as kind of a teaching way but also like a, a reflection of of yourself it is weird how video games for me at this point in my late 30s are are in a it's an escape it's an avoidance almost of real responsibility things that I know I need to get done that I just need a break after working or after doing something stressful, um, go into a different place, disassociate a bit weirdly. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and I've been doing that since I was a kid when I was stressed out with school or something, I would want to play my video game. Uh, that's why Ultima online was a real addiction, a problem. Yeah. I'm with you. It's, It's weird how to me that, like feeling of escapism and addiction and all that kind of stuff, like like carries with you your whole life in a weird way. Like games provide that. I think that'll probably carry with us. I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you, like, how do you see gaming um, like being a part of your life over the next, like say 10 to 20 years? What do you think it'll be for you? That's a good question. So yeah, currently I, I use them. They're definitely kind of an escapism and kind of like babysit your brain sometimes just when do this I really really enjoy story games as I said and I think there are some video games that the story is so good I guess what I'm saying is to me I feel like in the future I'm going to still be playing these same games because it's almost like an interactive movie which I do like I know some people don't but I really like getting caught up in the story and getting to control it. And I, there's so many instances in my life 
where I'll look back and I'm a grown woman and I'll stay up all night because I want to know how the story ends. Like I'll be up all night. Like I can't stop. I can't stop. I can't stop. Like I know how it ends. Um, so I think that for me, it's going to be, it's going to be like that. I, I would be very, it would be funny to me if I like suddenly love something like Animal Crossing and it like switches. But <laughs> I think it's, I'm going to stay the course. I've, I'm pretty sure I'm going to keep uh, like 10, 20 years from now, I'm still going to be playing video games. Yeah, same. And I think my answer is probably similar, but I'd add that I feel like video games as a storytelling vehicle is like improving so vastly with every new generation of games. Like God of War 2018, for example, just like blew my mind with like um, like how well it was written, like the kind of like emotional density of it, like the how um, real the characters like felt both in their like dialogue and the way they look and emote. You know, it's like games are becoming so advanced now that like it's it's no longer just like the kind of clunky, you know, dialogue box sort of storytelling from, you know, not even that long ago. I feel like even in the early 2010s, like, go back and listen to some of that dialogue on a lot of popular games, and it's just, like, really kind of cringy and, like, not great. But, like, man, they're getting so much better at that. Like, they're getting real voice actors, and, like, the um, the CGI is getting to the point where, like, it really looks like they're saying, it, you know, almost like a like high-budget, multimillion-dollar, like, animated film or something like that. So I'm really excited to see like how the storytelling and like both in terms of visual effects and in writing like gets better over the next 10 to 20 years. You know, I, I feel like we're going to get like a Citizen Kane of video gaming here in the next few years. I feel like it's inevitable. When I think about gaming in the future, I think it's going to probably stay the same. I mean, I feel like it's just like part of it's like a thread in the tapestry of like me as a person. It's like it's such an important thing. Like working on this this like you know these last like few weeks i'm like oh man i'm getting so nostalgic i'm thinking about things like uh i'm thinking about how bad my brother always tried to cheat in every video game and still lost he would still lose to me but he would try really hard to cheat every single time it's just like i don't know i like i i don't see myself you know being in my 50s and not having video games around i just think it's like you know if i do have a family one day if i do have kids i think i'm gonna be like hey here are video games because then it'll give me an excuse to play video games with you and stuff like that. I love what you said, Max, about video games being a part of the tapestry that is you. Like I'm looking at a list right now. I'm, I can just see it. This is my life right here in a list of titles. Um, and at the top of the list is that Intellivision video game system that I had when I was a little kid. I don't have clear memories of it, but I remember... Um, sitting in front of this old CRT television with my dad, specifically my dad. And we were playing, uh, do you remember in the old game Centipede? We were playing Centipede together. Recently took my son to Dave and Buster's and there was a Centipede game, like an arcade game with Centipede. And it was cool and new and looked neater and had flashing lights and everything. And he looked at it and he just wanted to play. And he said, dad, play with me. So I sat down with him and we played a bunch of rounds and I think just using video games in the future for me as an excuse to spend some quiet time with my son where we get to bond and learn about things and have those moral choices that I was talking about and just, uh, I don't know, using them as a weirdly a tool to kind of shape his outlook on the world and the way he views other people and, and things uh, within it and himself, as you were speaking to Annie, like through this character, how do I see myself? That's what I'm going to do. This episode of Ephemeral was co-written by Max Williams and Trevor Young with production by Max Williams and additional editing from Jesse Funk. Stephen L. Kent is the author of the ultimate history of video games, volumes one and two. Some of the great music this episode, like the piece you're hearing now, comes courtesy of the artist Mon Plaisir. If you've listened to Ephemeral for a while, you've heard a lot of their work, and we're happy to announce we'll have an upcoming episode interviewing the artist. For now, hear more at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. And big thanks to our return guests, Matt Frederick and Annie Reese. We'd love to hear from you about your favorite games. What are your best gaming memories? 
What do you think the future holds for video games? Let us know on social media. We're at Ephemeral Show. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.